0: We guys know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, yes? Right? The Christmas Carol, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, it's March now, it's, it's, not, it's way too late for this, or it's way too early for this, either way, I don't get it, right? But Ebenezer Scrooge was a man who originally, when the story opens and begins, he was all about who? Himself, himself Right? He was all about Ebenezer Scrooge. He was going to live for himself. He was going to do everything that he was going to do for himself. He was all about patting his pocket. He wanted to make sure that he was going to earn the most money. And that's why he had uh, Bob Marley was the guy's name, right? Wasn't that the, the, the guy that, that worked for him? He had him working there way late and, and, and working there on, on Christmas time. It's not Bob Marley, is it? Cratchit, Cratchit thanks. I knew Cratchit was in there somewhere. I just didn't know where. I saw Jaden in the back there. Jaden's like, it's not Bob Marley. But he wasn't going to tell me because he was just going to let me hang out there on the line. But he had Cratchit working on Christmas Eve. And Cratchit's like, why? And, and Scrooge is like, because I want more money. Well, Scrooge goes home and he encounters these ghosts, right, that that come and visit him in his dreams. And we don't believe in ghosts and, and that nonsense. But the the ghosts come and they they walk him through and they, basically what they do is they show him what his life would be like if, if he didn't ever exist. And they show him what his life is going to look like in the future if he doesn't change. And he gets the message and he begins to change his ways. And he begins to think less about himself and more about others. Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which is where we're going to be together tonight, that is what Solomon wants you and I to start doing. He gives us a biblical take. He gives us a, a take that's Really, God's take on why we should be living not for ourselves, but for one another. The series beginning at the end, again, as we start Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of the book, says the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh, The end of the matter, all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So we're thinking about how should we then live, right? That's the the question that Ecclesiastes is asking. If life is vanity, which is the opening of the book, vanity, vanities, everything is vanity. It's meaningless, right? It's here and it's gone. It's that vapor coming off your coffee cup. If that's life then how should we live in light of that? Big picture, fear God and keep his commandments. Tonight we get to see a, another piece of the puzzle of what that actually looks like practically. And it's this idea that our life shouldn't be lived for ourselves, but she should be lived for God. And by extension of being lived for God, it should be lived for others. Ecclesiastes chapter four, pick up in verse one with me. King Solomon writes, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Have you ever looked around the world and just felt the heaviness, the brokenness? Have you ever looked around the world and just been crushed by the evil in this world? The wickedness in this world? The twistedness of people? These are headlines that came out this week. Here's one. Senate Democrats Block Bill Requiring Doctors to Provide Medical Care for Newborns Who Survive Abortions. So people voted. To say that if a baby survives an abortion, that a doctor is not required to provide health care to save that baby. They can take that baby screaming and in pain that has survived this abortion and is mangled and is bleeding to death or has limbs that are broken because of the botched abortion. And rather than working to save the life, which is the Hippocratic oath of the doctor, by the way, the Senate Democrats have said that they can put the baby on the table, walk away, and let the baby suffer to death. Let that sit on you. Or there is this one, at least seven dead in shooting rampage at the Molson Coors factory in Milwaukee. Another mass shooting. Another person who walks into a room, walks into a building, walks into a workplace, walks into a school, walks into a movie theater, wherever it may be, pulls out a gun and begins to fire at random and kill as many people as They possibly can. Kill moms, kill dads, kill husbands, kill uh, wives, kill brothers, kill sisters, kill sons, kill daughters without regard. Or there's this one, missing New Mexico woman from a secluded Mennonite community found dead. You have these cults, you have these, uh, these situations where people are harmed, abducted, held captive, hurt. That's the world where we live. And a lot of times at your life stage and where you are, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. You don't spend a lot of time on news sites. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about the the pain and the tragedy and the hard and the heartache That is in this world, but Solomon wants to call our attention to that. And he says, look, as king of Israel, I've looked out there and I've seen the brokenness of this world. And I think the world has gotten worse even from where Solomon was at. He says, you've seen the oppressions done under the sun, the oppressions, the the acts of violence the acts of injustice that are done under the sun the rape the murder the incest the child abuse the terrorism you see those things solomon says those things exist there are people that oppress others that commit acts of injustice on and against other people and he says and you've seen the the, the tears of the oppressed Those that have been abused, those that have been taken advantage of, those that are the victims of these acts, Solomon says, I have seen them weeping. Some of you in this room have cried the same tears. You've been the oppressed. You've been sinned against in heinous ways that nobody should ever be sinned against. And you've cried these tears that Solomon is saying that he has seen in this world. And he says, I've seen the corrupt get away with evil because they had power on their side. Again, some of you have been in that situation. The people that have abused you, the people that have hurt you, the people that have wronged you have gotten away with it, at least temporarily, because you've been powerless to do anything about it. And so maybe you've concluded with Solomon at times in your life, and and this is the king of Israel who's sitting on his throne in the, the most wealthy nation at the time, the most powerful nation at the time, and the king of Israel says this, it would be better, I've thought at times, to be dead. Man, the dead have it better because they're not going through the wickedness that I'm going through right now or that I'm seeing around me right now. And then Solomon says this on top of that. He says, you know what, actually it would be better to never have been born at all. Some of you have sat in your rooms and cried those tears and thought those thoughts in your mind. Some who read that want to believe that this is Solomon reflecting on the perspective of an unbeliever, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this is Solomon understanding who God is, that God is like we already talked about if you were with us at the, the retreat, that God is sovereign over all of this mess that's going on. And I think this is Solomon that's looking around at it and he's grieving the world that he lives in. And he's grieving the loss and he's grieving the wickedness and he's grieving uh, the selfishness. and He's frustrated and he's he's broken over it. But see, here's what we're coming face to face with and that is the the total depravity of man of human beings that by default we live for ourselves when we are born we are born with one person on the throne and that is me We're born thinking about our needs, our wants, our desires, and then the world around us continues to train us on those things and and fuel those desires and fuel that mindset and build that up and say that that's a, a good thing. Hitler became Hitler not because he cared about other people, but because he cared solely about himself. These Democrats that are voting that doctors should leave babies alive after botched abortion activities are voting that way because what they care about ultimately is they care about themselves and nothing else. And they're worried if they vote wrong, then they're going to lose their people that are going to vote for them to keep them in office in the position of power. The parents that look at their child as an inconvenience, they're going to uh, abuse that child they're going to to neglect that child, ignore that child, not care for that child. Why? Because they're selfish and all they care about is themselves. The rapist is so consumed with his, his lust and has no comprehension of God's selfless design for sex that he's going to take what he wants and walk away and not care because he's living for himself. The murderer is going to think to himself, I'm better, I'm more valuable, I'm more worthy than the life that I'm attacking, than the person whose life that I am taking, and I'm better than that person. And the murderer thinks to themselves, well, it's all about me. You see, Paul's primary indictment, his primary charge against all of humanity in Romans chapter 1 is this. Listen to verses 24 through 25 of Romans 1. Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What's at the heart of what Paul's driving at there? That they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Which creature is he really talking about? He's talking about the self. He's talking about the the, the primary charge against mankind is we've said, God, thanks but no thanks to you being the Lord of my life. I'm gonna be Lord of my life. That my devotion, my affection, my cause in life is gonna be for me and my uh, satisfaction over and above anyone else's. The greatest and most common expression of this depravity is the worship of self. And that's what we see in this opening part of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But Solomon's going to push a little bit past that because he wants us to see that it's, it's, it's not just the wicked of the wicked that he's talking about here. Because then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Then I saw, there's, this, there's three things that Solomon sees in this chapter. The first is the, the oppressions. I saw the oppressions. And then he says this in verse 4. Then I saw all the toil, the work, all the skill in work. They come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He says, man, just like the oppressors, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. See, the depravity of ourselves extends beyond the atrocities of of oppression. The selfish people in the world are not just the, the rapists, the murderers, the, the thieves, the, uh, the, the people voting for people to, to, to kill babies at will. That, it's, it's not just there, but it, it extends even closer to home. And it, it gets to the place where it's the person who's busying themselves and living their life in order to be better than somebody else. That's what Solomon is talking about. He says, man, I saw the businessman. I saw the businesswoman who is so consumed with envy over their their neighbor and what their neighbor has that they're willing to devote their whole life to their work and their toil and their labor, labor and their skill in order to be better than that person, to have more than that person has. And Solomon says, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Envy creates that desire for me to be better, to have more, to be worth more. To get further, to get higher than somebody else. One person put it this way, we step on the heads of the neighbors under us to win favor with the neighbors above us. So you're climbing the ladder and you're gonna step on people on your way up and maybe you're helping somebody out who's above you in rank, but the only reason you're doing that is so that they're gonna give you a hand so that you can pull yourself up even with them and then pull them down below you. So you think to yourself, well, I want the promotion over my coworker. I deserve it more. I'm a better worker. I need the money more than that person does. Or you think to yourself, well, I want the nicer car. It's not fair that that person has that car. It's not fair that their mom or dad bought that car for them and that they don't have a car payment. They don't know how to work. They don't know what their, what hard work is. They just, it's been handed to them. I'm the one who deserves the nice things. Or you think, well, I want the the better looking guy or girl. How did that person get a girlfriend that looks like that what in the world was she intoxicated when she said yes to going out with him you guys chuckle but we have thoughts along those lines i want the better relationship i want the better wedding i want the better future than this other person i want the better grade in school i'm smarter than that person i deserve that See, these thoughts come into our minds when we begin to, again, put the self above and beyond anyone else. And see, that's what Solomon's indicting in this opening part of chapter four. Seeing, yes, it's the oppressors, but it's also the person that looks at their neighbor and says, man, I want what they have, so I'm gonna work as hard as I possibly can in order to be better than them. Solomon says, that's vanity. That's vanity. He says, there has to be a a balance, right? Because the flip side of that is also wrong. He says, there's two things. that You can envy your neighbor, and you can think to yourself, well, I'm gonna be... The person that works harder would be better than that person. Or, on the flip side is, you can envy what your neighbor has, and you can be like, man, forget that. It's not worth working. I'm not going to be a benefit to anyone else. I'm just going to be lazy. And he says, the lazy person folds his hand and eats his flesh. In other words, it's self-destructive to be lazy. And Solomon says, you need to find the balance. You need to have a a handful of quietness, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, describes what that looks like. It says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to have to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after a wind. So when Solomon says it's better to have a a handful of of quietness, he's saying there needs to be that balance there. The self says, I want to be better than that person or the self says, forget that. I'm not going to do anything that's going to help anyone. Solomon's saying both of those are wrong. But he goes further, verse 7. He says, again, I saw so he saw the oppressions. He saw the, the envy that drives people to, to, to become a workaholic. And then he says this in verse 7, I saw the outcome of that. I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no one else, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. All his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This last bit of self centered living exposes the tragedy of the person that's married to their career. This is the person that has no family. He has no son nor brother, no one to share it with. He's not working for anyone other than himself. That's it. And so this is the person, maybe she gets to the top of the corporate ladder and she gets to be the CEO of the company, but then she looks around and she has no one to celebrate with, no one to share it with, and she has left tattered relationships everywhere in her past. This is the person that sits in the restaurant and can buy dinner for every single person in the restaurant, and yet there's nobody that wants to eat with him. Solomon's saying, I've I've seen the outcome of this living in its vanity. Vanity. Again, what is this? This is total depravity. This is total depravity. John Calvin was the one who put that concept out there, but the Bible is the one that teaches the concept. Total depravity means that we are born depraved. In other words, we are born incapable of living for anyone other than ourselves. And so when you think about your life, you were not born neutral. Nobody in this room was born with the potential to live a perfect life. No one. You were born guilty. You were born with the sin nature that came to you through Adam. And that's why from the the moment that we're born, we have a, a need for the gospel. We have a need for Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior because we are incapable of thinking about anyone other than ourselves. And so you think about the the good deeds that people who are unbelievers do and, and really at the bottom of it, those good deeds are done why? For what purpose? They're done for themselves. The Boy Scout who helps the old lady across the street helps the old lady across the street in order to what? Get the merit badge that says, I helped an old lady across the street the good works. That's why Isaiah says that when we come to God with our good works as people that aren't in Christ or aren't uh, in the Old Testament followers of God and we bring these good works and we, we pile them up and we say, okay, God, are, are you happy with me now? Look at how good I've been. Look at all the good things that I've done. You know what God says there through Isaiah is he says they are filthy rags in his eyes. And it's more graphic than that and I, I won't go there tonight in this context in, in mixed company but it's, it's extremely strong, God's revulsion to us bringing our good works and laying them down and saying, okay, God, are you happy with me now? Why? Because when we do that, we're looking for glory. We're looking for the the applause. We're looking for the acclaim. And it's an expression of our depravity, of our self centeredness, which is what Solomon is indicting here. And it's what you and I need to make sure that we are avoiding as we're asking this question okay, if life is vanity, how should I then live? The first thing that I want you to see from this text tonight is that you need to flee the destructive nature of selfish living. Flee the destructive nature of selfish living. There was a football coach back in the 1990s whose name was Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys back when they used to know how to play football. Jimmy Johnson won Super Bowls with the Dallas Cowboys, which was the the pinnacle of his coaching career. But one thing that that came out during that time, and I remember learning about it even when I was younger and thinking to myself, that man, that is the foolish, that is the most foolish thing that he could have ever done. Jimmy Johnson divorced his wife so that he could give more time and attention to football. He said, my wife is getting in the way of my pursuit of football. So I'm gonna give myself completely to that and I'm gonna forfeit my family. I'm gonna forfeit my relationship with my kids. I'm gonna forfeit my relationship with my wife. Well, just recently, Jimmy Johnson was inducted into the Professional Football Hall of Fame. And now it's done. That's as high as he can go. There's nothing left for him to achieve. That's it. It's over, it's done. He's won his Super Bowls and he's, he's in the Hall of Fame. But who does he have who really cares about that? Right? What did he give up in order to serve the God of himself in pursuing those things? He gave up everything and there's nothing left now for him to do. There's, there's nothing left for him to say, okay, and now I can throw myself into living for this because he's hit the top. There's nowhere else to go now. And when we worship the creature rather than the creator, you're going to live your life longing for and pursuing the top. I have to get to this. This is next. This is next. This is next. Eventually, you're going to get there. And then the question is, now what? So what? Who cares? I mean, even think about being the president of the United States of America. When was the last time that you thought about George Bush, either of them? Probably not recently. And he was at the pinnacle of the most powerful position that you can have as a human being in this country, one of the most powerful nations in the world. And yet, does he cross your mind? No. And so if that's all you're living for, you will hit whatever that ceiling is for you. And if you're living for yourself, it will not satisfy you. That's what Solomon's been driving at this whole time in this book. But that's the default of selfish living. That's the default of you and I is we are born with that idea that it's all about me. It's about what I can get. And guys, let me get real with you if I can for a second and step on some toes here. I'm not preaching to everybody in the room, but there is a sense where people look at this ministry and they say, well, it's not cool enough for me. And they leave. They leave. And, guys, that that makes me righteously angry, if I can be just blunt with you. Because it is such a self absorbed, self aggrandizing position. It's conceited, it's egotistical, it's unbiblical beyond measure. And it's a manifestation of it's all about what am I going to get out of this? Instead of saying, well, what can I offer to this? And so just because we're believers doesn't mean that this isn't a problem for us anymore. It absolutely is. This is why Paul can write so boldly in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Guys, that's our DNA from an earthly perspective. Every single one of us. That's our default. We're still prone to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The difference, though, now is that in Christ, now we can think about others. We can think about God. We can think about Christ. See, in Christ, God has overcome total depravity. It's no longer that we are bound to only think about us, now He has freed us to now think about other people and to serve other people, and to love other people as an expression of our devotion and our allegiance to God. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's not about me, but it's Christ who lives in me. Everything that you are pursuing should be pursued about the glory of God. You need to ask yourself about your goals, about your mindset, about different things. Is this primarily because it's about me Or this is primarily about God. And if it's not primarily about God and it's primarily about you, then God is saying, put that to death in your life. I remember growing up in Dallas, driving by this one house. I can still see it in my mind. And I I remember every time I was driving by that house as a a little kid in the backseat of my parents' car, just being in awe of this thing. It was massive, like just huge house, right? Dallas doesn't have mountains or hills um, or really even trees, sort of trees. It has trees in some areas. But this house just rose up out of the landscape. Like it was just gigantic. And I remember thinking to myself, man, what an amazing house. I can't believe what it must be like to live there. I remember thinking to myself, man, it would be so cool to to have a family in that house and have your brothers and sisters in that house and and to be able to play in that house and play hide and seek and everything else. Well, later on, as as I got older, I came to find out that the person that owned that house was a single man. He was a surgeon in Dallas, well-known, very successful surgeon, and his money had bought him a massive house, but he had nobody to live in it with. We used to joke you could break into that house and live there for a few weeks and nobody would have any clue that you were there. What a lonely existence that is. To sit in the middle of your cavernous mansion and look around and go, look at all my awesome stuff and yet have nobody to hear you or care about that. That's where living for yourself will get you and that's what Solomon is warning us against. Don't live for yourself. Don't be like that. Yes, don't be the oppressor, but also don't be the guy that's so driven by your own fame and success that that's all you focus on for your whole life and you waste your life. Verse 9, he begins to give us, okay, if not that, then what? He says in verse 9, two are better than one because they've got a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here's the paradigm shift. This is where, as one commentator said, this is where Solomon introduces the goal of life is not living for me, but for we. That we to live for we, not me. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Have you guys ever heard the, the statement, many hands make what? Light work, right? That there's a benefit to working with somebody else, to having somebody else side by side. You're going to get things done faster. But there's also reward for that. If, if you partner with somebody and you're able to use their giftedness and their knowledge and their intellect to be able to, to help you in, in pursuing whatever the goal is, chances are you're going to be more successful at that thing that you're pursuing than if you just pursue it by yourself. I remember in school growing up, the, the two words that I hated the most from my teacher's mouth was group project. Anybody else there with me? I just did not like that. And you know why I didn't like that? Because I was arrogant and conceited and selfish. Because I thought to myself, man, I'm going to have to pull the weight, or I don't want to have to work with other people, or I don't want to have to depend on other people. But honestly, when you look back at a group project afterwards, you look back at it and you think to yourself, okay, that actually was a pretty good deal. I didn't have to do as much work as I would have had I had to do that all by myself. And this person actually did a pretty good job on their presentation that I don't think I would have been able to do as good of a job on that. Right? So you see that there's a benefit in that teamwork. You see that there's a benefit in working together and living in community with one another. Two are better than one because they've got good reward for their toil. But then he says also that there's a benefit to living in community, living for the we, not for the me, because of when adversity arises in our lives. He says in the text, he says, For if they fall, the one falls, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and doesn't have anyone else to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But what about the one that's by himself? How can one keep warm alone? And finally, although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he adds that threefold part there at the end just to say he's not just defining it legalistically as just two people. It's like, great, three, great, awesome. Three is even stronger. But his point is this. He says, when the day of adversity comes, and it will come, to have somebody to be there with you is gonna be beneficial for you. The person who loses their job and has no one to support them or to pray for them or to encourage them or to take them in is in a lonely and scary place. The person who goes to the doctor's office and hears the doctor say you have cancer and there's no one there for them to weep with is in a despondent place. Or to be by yourself all alone in a house at night and wonder what that noise was that you heard downstairs and not have anybody to go, hey, did you hear that? Can be a little bit of an angst-ridden and frightening place to be. See, Solomon's just pointing out the the, the common sense here. He's saying, as you're asking yourself, well, how should I then live? It just, it makes sense to live not for yourself, but for other people. There's a benefit in that. It's helpful in that. This is the way that we are designed to live. Point number two tonight, by the way, we only have two points tonight, is this, pursue the joyful reality of living for others. Pursue the joyful reality of living for others. I've mentioned this verse time and time again, I feel like, but there's a scene in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where a teacher comes up to Jesus, an expert in the law comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, teacher, he says this, he says, or asks this, what's the greatest what? Commandment, right? Now, just for context, there were over 600 commandments that Jesus could have pulled from, right? Right? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment, to answer your question, the question that you asked, the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, right? But Jesus didn't stop there, because he goes further and he, he says, basically, and to answer the question that you didn't ask, but that you should have asked, is the second greatest commandment is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes further and he says, in fact... So great are those two commandments. Number 1 is always going to be love God. You should love no one greater than more than than God. But then second to that, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, "Those two commandments are so great that the entirety of the law, every other law depends on you loving God and loving others." So basically, what Jesus just answered for that man, and he says, "The goal of your life, the goal of your life is to love God, And love others. Notice there's not a third option that says, and love yourself while you're at it. This whole concept, guys, that's that's floating around in in the social media world and everything else of self-care, right? It's like chapter and verse. Like we should be good stewards of our body. I'm not I'm not denying that. But when Jesus was asked, hey, what, what what's the greatest, what does God want from me above and beyond anything else? He wants you to love him and he wants you to love others. Those are the two. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Which follows shortly after this because he says, love your neighbor as yourself and they're thinking to themselves, oh man. Okay. Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story to answer your question says there's a man coming down he's he's a jewish man he's a good jewish man he's coming down from the the worship and he gets mugged and he gets left for dead by the side of the road and he's beaten and bloody and bruised and everything else and he's just kind of gross and moaning and groaning in his pain on the side of the road and and here comes a levite and and, or another jew coming down and and the, the the guy comes up and he recognizes that the man on the side of the road needs help but he he passes by on the other side of the road so that he's not inconvenienced by the man. And then, then a Levite, a priest, is coming back from actually serving in the temple. And he sees the man on the side of the road. And, and certainly, he should care for his neighbor. But the priest says, no, I'm not, I'm not getting my hands dirty. And maybe I would get mugged too. So, so he goes around. And then there comes down the, the road a who? A Samaritan. That word would have made their skin crawl. And Jesus said, the Samaritan went to the man who was beaten and bruised and, and bloodied. The Jew, the Samaritan went to him, bandaged him, put oil on his wounds, put him on his own animal, led him to an inn, paid for his room and board and said, if you incur any other cost beyond this, I will be back and I will pay you whatever else you owe. And then Jesus looked at the Jewish crowd and they said, he said to them, who was the neighbor? And they were forced to say what? The Samaritan.'" through clenched teeth, hating every syllable of that word. Jesus was saying, there is no one who exists that's not your neighbor. And so as you think about the joyful reality of living for others and loving God and loving your neighbor, it's not just loving the people that you're comfortable with. It's not just loving the people that you think are up to your social standards. It's not just loving the people that you feel like are part of a group that you want to be associated with. It is loving your neighbor and that has no boundaries to it. Upper room discourse. Jesus is about to go to the cross He gets down and he takes off his outer garment and he puts on the the servant's towel and he wraps it around himself. And he goes and he kneels down and he begins to clean the filthy, grotesque, dirty feet of the disciples. A job reserved for the lowest of the low as far as the household servants go. And Jesus does that. And then he goes around and he gets to Peter and he says to Peter, hey, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter says, don't do that. Jesus says, If I don't do that, you have no part in me. Peter says, hey, forget just my feet, wash everything. And Jesus says, no, the feet are good. But after that, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, in the context, the disciples are thinking, man, that means washing the feet of my brothers in Christ? Man, that's pretty low. Okay, that's pretty self-sacrificial to love my neighbor that way, right? But then Jesus goes to the cross, and all of a sudden it makes even more sense to us when we see that he gave his life for us. And he said, love one another as I've loved you. That's how we're to live our lives for others. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, it has nothing to do with weddings. Can I just tell you that? Nothing to do with weddings. We read it at weddings and that's fine and good. Whatever. If your parents have it like the rings are like with a a photo box in 1 Corinthians 13, whatever, it's not heresy. It's just not about weddings. Paul was writing to who? The church. And he was telling the church how they should love each other. Patient, kind, not envious, not boastful. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but delights in the truth. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. See, Paul's writing to us to say this is how you should live for one another. It's not about us. The message in scripture over and over again is you and I are meant to live for other people. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's not of an isolated Christian. Solomon says two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon was looking at the world and, and his own experience and the experience of others that he had observed and he was saying, life is better when it is lived with and for other people as an extension of your relationship with the Lord. How should you live in this life that's vain, that's vanity of vanities? As you live it mindful of the Lord, you live it for Other people love God and love others. As I was writing this, I was thinking about regrets. And I was thinking to myself that you never hear of anybody that on their deathbed says, man, I wish I hadn't spent as much time with people. I found an article that listed the top things that people never say on their deathbeds. It's quoting from a book called before I go letters to our children about what really matters. And here's what they said people will never say as part of their last words. I wish I had spent more time at the office and less time with my family. I wish I had spent more time being selfish. I wish I hadn't wasted all that time praying. I wish I had spent more time making money. I wish I had spent more time seeking knowledge and less time seeking wisdom. I wish I had spent more time worrying about justice and less about compassion. I wish I had spent more time thinking about my rights and less about others. I wish I had spent more time thinking about freedom and autonomy and less about love and harmony. I wish I had spent more time thinking about better sanitation, transportation, and economics and less about the escapist fantasy called heaven. And then this last one, people never say on their deathbeds how godlike man is. But so many of those have to do with our relationship with other people. If you were to die tonight, what would your list look like? What would your regrets be about the way that you've lived your life so far? What areas of your life would you say, man, I wish I I had lived my life differently if tonight was your last night on earth? What relationships would you say, man, I wish I had mended the fence in this relationship? Where could you give more, be more engaged, offer more, be more useful than you are right now that maybe if tonight was your last night, you would say, man, I, I wish I had been more generous in this area. If you were with us on the retreat, one of the messages that came from both me and Pastor Lucas was that this life is not ultimately about who? You. It's not. It's not about us. Even your salvation is not about you. It's about God. God saved you so that he would get glory. Not so that you wouldn't go to hell. He saved you so that you would praise him, so that you would worship him, so that you would glorify him. See, nothing in this life is ultimately about you. So think about your goals and and whatever your earthly goals are, whatever is at the, the top of that, God ultimately is not interested in you reaching that if it means that you are living for yourself in the process of getting there. Even if you're deluding yourself by thinking to yourself, well, I want to get rich and wealthy so I can give more back to the church. And so it's a noble, self centered goal. Okay, whatever. Is it wrong to be rich? No, but don't make that your life's pursuit. If God blesses you with wealth, praise Him and yes, support His work 100%. But don't make that your ultimate goal. He's not interested in you becoming successful at the expense of, of your, your family. Or having a family in general. I talk to so many young people that are like, I really don't care about being married. Guys, that is a super, super selfish point of view. To say, I don't, I don't really want to be married. I don't know that I really see that as, as, as my bag. Yes, there are people who have the gift of singleness. And, and yet I'm going to say that those are, the, the ones that genuinely have it for the right reasons are few and far between. I think the majority of people who would say, yeah, I'm not, I don't think marriage is really my, my thing. They just don't want to do the hard work of caring about somebody else for the rest of their lives like that. You guys remember when when God started over with Adam and Noah, what his command was to both of them? Be single and rule your domain. Is that what he said? Hey, be single and I'll make other people that are single in different parts of the world so you don't have to interact with them. Is that what he said? No, could he have done that? Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. God could have just created a bunch of single people around the world and then just kept doing that. But no, what was his design for even just the world continuing and in its existence? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Have families. Live in relationship with one another. Pursue the joyful reality of loving others. God has designed us for him and by extension for one another. And Solomon's trying to convince us and show us that that is a, a major part of the answer of how do I live my life under this sun? I don't live it for me. I live it for other people. Like Scrooge, who eventually realized that having everything didn't mean having the thing that mattered the most, and that is other people in his life. That his money couldn't buy him fulfillment and satisfaction, but actually had left him lonely and despairing. We also must realize that maximizing our selfish pleasures and realizing our selfish pursuits is not going to satisfy us, but it's going to leave us empty and echoing Solomon's theme in this book at the end of our lives, which is what? Vanity. I lived my life in pursuit of this. I cut people out. I chased my dream, my standards, And there's nothing left now my life is over and i can't take any of it with me and even the people that think yeah but i'm leaving it to my future generations generations so what you're gone and you have no concept of what they're going to do with it it's not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy when the worms are eating the flesh off your bones in the grave It's a waste. So, what's he saying? He's saying, deny the self. Don't live for the self. Live for others as an extension of your relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would embolden us and empower us to be able to live that way. It's hard to do in a world that says that we should do the opposite, that we should we should live for what makes us feel good, live for what we want, live for what scratches our itch for what feeds our ego. Lord, help us to put that off and to deny those things and to live for other people because of what you have done for us. You have purchased us, Lord, by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, not to be the lords of our own life, but that you might be the Lord over our life. And time and time again, as we've just seen in scripture, you command us to love other people, to not live for self, to die to self, for we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but now Christ lives in us. Lord, I pray that we would answer that call and truly live that life of humility, thinking more of others than of ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.